Martin Gurry is a former CIA analyst who writes about the relationship between politics and media. Gurry was born in Cuba and came to the United States with his parents in the 1950s. In 2014, he self-published an e-book titled The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. It was republished in hardback four years later in 2018. Martin Gurry says his thesis is a simple one. The information technologies of the 21st century have enabled the public, composed of amateurs, people from nowhere, to break the power of political hierarchies of the industrial age. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcasts. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operation so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Martin Gurry, what was it like working for the CIA for 28 years? Well, you can imagine there were a lot of changes during that time. Um, the CIA is a, um, it's one of the organizations that I describe in my book, the revolt of the public. It's, it's a hierarchy. It's, uh, um, essentially modeled on, um, the cold war as being the, the, um, the fundamental, um, encounter that we're supposed to meet uh the funny thing happens to an organization when it it mirrors an opponent as long as the cia did um it, it, the soviet union it becomes a little bit like that you you're so used to anticipating the other side that you become a little like that i always felt cia had that you know the touch of the politburo to it brilliant people courageous people uh in the um in the lobby of CIA, they have these stars uh, that symbolize people who have died in service. No names, just stars. They way more than doubled during my tenure. All right. These are people who are very dedicated. But the, the institution itself, um, you know, I, and I was in, uh, I always say, the least sexy corner of CIA. Uh, I, I was a, an analyst of global media. Um, I didn't have a license to kill. Uh, the, the, the beautiful ladies ever threw themselves at me. You know, the, nobody ever made a movie uh, about my my work. Um, but as part as, as part of that uh, great organization, um, I felt like we went through the end of the um, the Cold War, which, by the way, surprised CIA immensely. They were not predicting that. Um, and we went through 9-11, and uh, I would say those are two um, fairly epic moments in my career. When did you retire? 2010. And what are you doing now? This, I mean, I basically write a lot. Uh, the, uh, the book has been a tremendous blessing for me. I have met so many uh, intelligent persons, such as yourself, uh, that... Um, are interested in having conversations with me. I I work with, um, I'm a visiting fellow for Mercatus Center. And that pretty much describes my relationship with that group, which is also, by the way, chock full of uh, smart and learned people, many of them, an amazing number. Um, but I am, I visit, I'm, I'm a fellow that visits uh, Mercatus. So visiting fellow, I think, is a perfect description. Do I write for Discourse, which is their uh, magazine, a, a wonderful magazine that I recommend to everybody. And I write for other periodicals like a City Journal and so forth. Um, and and uh, essentially, my my interest is to see how how far the ideas in the book parse out um, as events uh, collide with those ideas. Of how far do they? Um, Falsify the ideas? How far do they uh, agree with them? Plenty of time to talk about the book, but I want to ask about your transition from Cuba to the United States. How did that happen? Under what circumstances? And when? Right. Um, the year was 1960. I was a relatively young person of, of uh, 11 years old, barely. Um, my father was a lawyer, apolitical Castro had taken over he'd been there for not quite two years 
And essentially, in a country that has no law, um, lawyers um, were unnecessary. My father, thank goodness, was a, a very perceptive man. Um, and he saw what was coming. Uh, all the companies that were his clients were being nationalized. So he, he, and my sister, my mother was pregnant with my sister. And for various reasons, we had, um, we had uh, American visas, but if the if the baby had been born in Cuba, that was it. There was no way she was ever going to get a visa. So I am very thankful for my youngest sister because she also she and my dad helped get get me out of Cuba. Um, so I was a young man. I culturally it was not a big deal. Uh, and Cuba was a fairly moderate. If you were a middle class Cuban like like my family and then my friends. Um, they're, they're, we watched the same TV shows, the same movies, same music, you know, rock and roll. I remember blaring from you know, Elvis Presley trying to memorize those words in English without knowing a word of what they meant. Um, of course, there's always the sense that you are the last of a line and, and you have come from this, this culture and now you've entered uh, a very different culture. But this is an amazing country. And I always say at some point, I don't know how it happens, but you start talking about um, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as your forefathers, even though they're really clearly not on your family tree. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I feel like um, I have always been tremendously grateful to to the United States. Uh, I have always felt for most of my life that I forget that I'm an immigrant. I forget. I'm not. There, there are no harsh reminders that I'm, I, I'm an immigrant, and I have been allowed to, you know, fulfill my wishes insofar as my meager talents uh, allow them to. Uh, um, and um, and I have trouble understanding people who who see this country as gigantically oppressive, discriminatory, and so forth, because that was not my experience. Where did you grow up? Uh, in we spent the obligatory uh, year in Miami, and the second thing I am th- most thankful to my dad for is he got us out of there. So I did not grow up in a Cuban ghetto. Um, I I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, um, you know, outside Washington D.C. My wife uh, went to the same high school I did. Um, uh, I, I've lived my entire life. We moved from from uh, Falls Church to Vienna, mighty Vienna, Virginia. Uh, which is about maybe 10 miles away. And that, except for a brief moment where I was assigned to uh, Paraguay, Asuncion, Paraguay, we've lived there our entire lives. Where'd you go to school? Uh, George Mason. And Mercatus is how much connected to George Mason and what does it do? It's totally connected to George Mason. I think everybody there is, except, you know, us visiting fellows just visit, but most of the core group of scholars there are, are teaching professors. Uh, and it's a research center that they produce research uh, papers uh, having to do with policy and, and, and such. Uh, I, you know, I have said it to their faces, so I don't think I'm talking behind their backs. These kind of, of all the think tanky places in Washington, Washington is full of think tanks, all right? I don't understand the concept very well of a think tank. You know, you pay people to think. I mean, it sounds kind of nice, but what's the point of this? And they generate all kinds of papers. Um, I think at a certain moment in history, when it was clear that um, the Republicans were going to be politically powerful, but were policy poor, those think tanks produced a lot of policy papers. But this is, we're talking the Reagan era now. Um, I think right now, that all those uh, think tanks have only multiplied um, I'm a kind of an odd duck in the in the Washington world. Um, and I don't I don't really understand that. I think research, which is what Mercatus does, makes the most sense of all of them. But it's a bit mysterious to me, to be true. So, how did you get a job with the CIA, and why did it interest you? It didn't. I mean, that was the strangest thing. Um, I, you, of all the all the unusual twists that my life has taken that's probably one of the most it there was an ad in the paper in the washington post uh that was not seen by me but by a friend of a friend of a friend who through a long chain eventually got to my wife who said this is perfect it's about translation it was a translation from spanish i said i said cia you're crazy and she goes no go and apply what what can it hurt i said well i i 
She said, I'll do your resume. My wife, if you want to get a job, get my wife to do your resume. Okay, so she did my resume. I got in. Uh, I had no, I, I, I thought that I had no chance. I thought no, I had no particular interest. Once I got in, I, I loved the work. I mean, the, the work was fascinating. We had a shop that looked at um, the entire global media if necessary in translation you could just say translate this article i mean from any language almost certainly i would say the most powerful translation shop in the world um and contrary to the culture of cia and to the movies and popular belief i would say i don't think I, again i'm giving away any secrets 80 percent of the information in the world including inside cia comes from open sources and it's more every day who would you credit in your career with having some of the best organizations presenting news and information around the world and in the United States? I was saying in the old days, oh, that, that's, a, that's a tricky question. I, I, I'm not a believer in news. I believe that the news is, I'm not sure what that is. Define to me what news is. I believe in information and um News as a category of information is um, is basically self-defined. If if it shows up in it in, in a newspaper or in a, a TV news broadcast, is news otherwise not? Um, and and there was there was um, many years ago, I think about twenty years ago, an effort to um, protect journalists who were being uh, compelled by law enforcement to reveal their sources, so that you could um, legally uh, uh, protect them. And that kind of foundered because nobody could quite define what a journalist was, right? So if I am online and I am writing about events, am I a journalist? So, um, but, you know, not, not to get too snooty about this, in the olden days, I'd say BBC probably had the best uh, media operation uh, and, and the most austere uh, take on on the news and the most complete uh around the world part of of what is i think and it always has been pathetically insufficient about american news is that we tend to beat on three or four themes and ignore the rest of the world uh bbc is you know i don't know whether it's the legacy of the empire or what i have been to bush house because uh my my there was an arrangement between bbc monitoring and my my uh, agency at CIA, and um, everybody spoke with the most impeccable Oxbridge accent, but they came from 100 different countries. I mean, it was kind of remarkable. So I, they pay attention to the world because I think once they owned most of it, right? The book, The Revolt of the Public, it seems to me, and maybe this is not fair to you, but it seems to me to be one of those word of mouth books that you and explain and the reason I say this is that somebody said, "Have you heard about this?" And then somebody said that the, somebody else said to them, and it just kind of passed along. And in your introduction, Doctor Kling, if he is a doctor, writes an introduction and says that Virginia Pastrell wrote a column, and that's where he got the idea. But he's also at Mercati, so I'm going through all this and want you to tell us how this all started back in the. Uh, it was published in 2014. Give us the background on how this happened. Yeah, actually, it's a, another weird story. I think my life is kind of littered with those. Um, it, when I was in CIA, it was already clear to not just me, but to many, many smart people inside my particular um, agency that the world was changing. The world of information was changing. It was changing dramatically. Uh, that this um, this earthquake of information, of digital information, you know, epicenter somewhere, Mountain View, El Paso, who knows, uh, had generated a tsunami of information that had completely overwhelmed the old authoritative sources that we used to have. I mean, in the old days, if the president said, what are the... What's the media in France saying about my policies? You went to two newspapers. You went to Le Monde. You went, you went to Le Figaro and done, okay? Suddenly in France, you had thousands of sources, some of which had seemed to have very interesting information. We had no idea who they were. 
So to make a short story long, um, I, um, I and several of us kept telling CIA we're missing the boat on this. We, we need to change our procedures, where, which were based for very, very um, narrow bands of information and figure out some way to deal with this enormous, you know, tsunami. Um, well, it didn't work. So when I left, I thought, okay, now I'm going to, you know, put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to write a book doing the kind of analysis I would have done if I could have done it in CIA. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 I love research. Nothing more fun than doing research because um, you always end, uh, start out thinking you know, and by the end you realize how little you do know and you've changed your mind about 100 things because the data has told you um, that that what you initially assumed was was wrong. So uh, uh, in the year 2014, I finished the book. I tossed it into Amazon, and um, it kind of sold a trickle here, a trickle there. Uh, Virginia's review was very generous. But basically what made the book was uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I am a Trump profiteer. You know, I'm not alone. I think the New York Times is probably the most guilty of this. But I am a Trump profiteer. Uh, the night that he got elected in 2016, um, my um, my smartphone just erupted. It's like, oh, Martin Gurry has won this election or something. I mean, it's strange, strange stuff. Um, a couple of years later, I got an email uh, from somebody called Patrick Collison, I'd never heard of, and said, I want to publish your book for real. And um, I got all kinds of you know, if you give me $10,000 or publish your book type emails, I thought, I thought this was going to be like that. I look up Patrick Collison. He's 21 years old at the time, and he's worth like a billion and a half. He, he's the CEO of Stripe, and he wants to start a whole new uh, branch of Stripe called Stripe Press. Very innovative. Very, He's out in San Francisco, very, very um, Silicon Valley. And so I said yes, and then I added a very long essay called Reconsiderations at the end of my initial book. Uh, and that book um, has sold a lot of copies. I mean, it has sold a lot of copies. And I call myself, you know, like I'm kind of like Dr. Doom, you know, like whenever things start to go really bad, like this is a kind of a bad moment, you know, um, wars are breaking, the Republicans can't get themselves to elect a a speaker, well, everybody comes to me for some reason. You know, when times are good, I am forgotten. So the day you don't hear from me anymore, that would be a really good time. So am I right that this was an, dumped into Amazon as an ebook in 2014 yep. and then published in 2018 by Stripe, yep. Yep. which is based in San Francisco? And then when did you add the reconsiderations chapter, long chapter that's it suggested at the beginning of the book? You read it at first, and yes. then you go back and read it again. Yeah, um, that was a tw the 2018 edition. Um, and you're right. Um, it has been word of mouth, but in, in um, not just, you know, people in the street, word of mouth as we're doing right now, for example. I have been in a lot of podcasts, and it and and a certain kind of person um, seems to take to the book. A certain kind of person seems just never to get it. Um, I am a hero in Silicon Valley. I've met lots of billionaires. I am a zero in Washington D.C., which is where I worked my entire life. Right, so. Um, the people in Washington, which are uh, ensconced in these hierarchical, slow-moving, um, old-fashioned institutions, just it's it's not that they are hostile to the ideas. It's like I'm talking Mandarin to them. They just don't understand what I'm saying. I can just see my mouth is moving and their eyes are getting bigger and bigger. They do not get it. They do not get it. You know, your C-SPAN is that right? I mean, you're kind of breaking ranks amongst the elites because most. Most people in Washington just simply have never been reviewed in the Washington Post, never been reviewed in the New York Times, sold a lot of copies. Well, first of all, we're not a member of the elite, but I do want to ask you about that word because you use it a lot in your book. Yeah. How, define it. What? Who are the yeah. elites? Yes, I have very clear definitions. And that's funny because when I, when I wrote the book, of course, 
it it wasn't in currency right now everybody talks about it and it, it gets a little tricky to figure out what it is that people mean by that word i had a very clear specific definition the elites are the people who manage the institutions that essentially make the modern world function okay uh and 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 by manage i mean belong to uh so you know of course government and politics but also corporations, but also academia, but also media, but also the scientific establishment. And there's a particular mindset that comes with that. You can be, you know, the the most, um, the lowest member of the, of the totem pole in some university, some kind of associate professor, whatever, uh, sitting in a, in a, um, in a cafe, that the owner makes probably 10 times what you make and that that owns that cafe, but you feel superior to that person because you belong to that institution. You are part of this elite group and you, you have these rules of behavior and these uh, shared ideals and, and, and shared opinions that, that make you an elite. Uh, When I wrote the book, it was pretty clear that the elites um, were dead set against what I call the, 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 the forces that have led to the revolt of the public, the digital uh, sort of flattening of, of, uh, of information. And that has only become more apparent since we've had all these attempts to censor uh, social media and, and pretty successful ones, I have to say, that have come out in uh, Twitter files, for example. I want to read you a quote from your book. This is a pet peeve of mine. Some people will laugh when I read this as if it doesn't matter, but I, it jumped out at the page to me. You say, in a few short years, the political landscape has been transformed into a bedlam of irreconcilable factions, violent and profane language that would never have, that would have been unthinkable in 2014 is routinely used. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, nowadays you have even politicians, you know, dropping F-bombs and um, essentially behaving in a way that um, schoolyard kids in my day, I mean, if you talk that way to somebody, you better get ready to, you know, get into a fight, (laughs) right? Um, Now, um, so it's a a measure of the, the collapse of the old world, the hierarchical world that I, as as not a young person, as you can see, um, lived in probably most of my life, uh, a world in which uh, the hierarchy actually formed you uh, and you abided by uh, the rules of that hierarchy. Uh, I think uh, that has been swept away by by the tsunami. I think the the institutions have become very performative. So in this babble of voices, what Jonathan Haidt calls the Tower of Babel, um, the only way you are heard is by being extreme and using, but you, you have to be the loudest shouter and you have to have the most enemies on the other side shouting back at you so that people notice. And you have to have the most extreme language that everybody is startled. Uh, it's structural. This is a, this is basically you will not be heard. If you're the voice of moderation, you will sink to the bottom and nobody will pay attention. you have any idea where this first started? I mean, it it is a function of um, the loss of control by the elites of the conversation. Uh, and that is 100 uh, percent, you could say, the... the the, the, the turn of the century when uh, the digital began to have a serious effect on the information structure. I'm going to jump to a crisis of authority chapter and read the first paragraph. Okay. You say the street protests of 2011, while ostensibly political, were part of a global assault on the guardians of authority across every domain of human activity. The protesters stood in the same relation to the government that bloggers and social media did to newspapers, 
YouTube to television, Napster to the recording industry, massive online courses to universities, Amazon to shopping malls, the open science movement to the scientific establishment from the commanding heights of the information sphere the public sought in each case to break a monopoly held by an accredited elite. Have they done that? Yes, but is the answer. Yeah, I I, I think... um, it, when you look at the volumes of information, I mean, that when I was a young media analyst, as I said before, if the open information was a trickle. Starting, um, I mean, if you look at the year 2001, the volume of information produced in 2001 was double, double the amount produced in all of previous history, going back to cave paintings and the dawn of culture. 2002 double 2001 if you follow that trajectory um and it, it sort of has on a, you know, not quite but has continued uh on that uh, basis if you chart that it really does look like a gigantic wave a, a tsunami there is no way our hierarchies which uh, were constructed in the 20th century to manage and and monopolize trickles of information can control this gigantic flood. It has escaped them. What is authoritative today is up for grabs. Everything up to including what is true. Explain this. The New York Times has 10 million people that signed up for their digital service, which is a lot bigger than they ever were before digital. But in television, everybody has lost audience. A lot of audience. I mean, 60 Minutes used to have an audience of, say, 30 million on a Sunday night. Now they have on an average of 7 million on a Sunday night. Why did the New York Times have a bigger audience in this world now compared to what television is? Well, remember what I said. Um, I call myself a Trump profiteer, but I mean, I am a piker compared to the New York Times. (laughs) All right. The New York Times... In the year 2015, say, before Trump sort of came down that golden escalator, um, had its numbers of digital subscribers was under a million, under a million. By the end of the Trump administration, it was eight or nine million. You say 10 now, that that may well be true. Um, It is a question in my mind that, I mean, Trump is still there and he may, for all we know, be president again. Um, but at some point, I mean, he's fortunately not immortal, so he's politically certainly not immortal. He will vanish. I am not at all certain that uh, that large audience of the New York Times will survive the loss of Donald Trump. But if you want to know the why of it, I would recommend a book by um, a, a possibly the most brilliant media analyst that, that I know of, uh, Andre Mir. Um, called Post Journalism, in which he explains very carefully um, how journalism has transitioned from um, the facade being uh, I I am providing objective news to an audience that are really eyeballs for for advertisers. So you don't want to alienate anybody by taking these real strong positions. To being almost uh, a, a purveyor of a creed, I am the, the 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 protected garden. That if you are uh, a liberal or a progressive, you come to my 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 paywalled garden. We shut the doors and we give you the words that encourage you and and that that you can then spout back and 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 uh, confront those those devilish Trumpists out there. Um, it is entirely a different model. It can be, uh, as Andre says. Uh, done by only one. You can only have one church. You can't have 20 churches of anti-Trump. So all the other newspapers are dying. The Washington Post just posted a $100 million loss. Um, So how long can that even be sustained by the New York Times? I'm not sure. But the model, the uh, post-journalistic model, uh, you have to give them credit. You know, they have have essentially... um, covered, for example, the Russia-Trump uh, controversy, uh, things that 
turned out to be false. In other words, they, 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 they had literal thousands of articles in the New York Times about uh, Trump being an agent of the Russians. And almost every one of those articles, he was culpable. Turned out that, you know, that the investigations were done, the report came out, nope, there was nothing there. But it was a big success for the New York Times. You may think it was a, a journalistic failure. It was not. During that time, uh, their uh, online subscriptions went up by two or three million. So it's a good business model. In your book, you use Alan Greenspan to make a point. Yes. What is it? Well, he is the man who knew everything about the economy. Uh, that our, our, the elites of the 20th century, their pose is that they are scientific. They are experts. They are accredited. Society is too complex to be left to the amateurs. That, by the way, is 100% true. The problem is the elites don't know as much as they think they do. They certainly don't know as much as they tell us that they do. And Alan Greenspan, who was called, I think, the conductor, or the maestro, that's what it was, in a, in a book that was written about him, because he conducted the economy like, like a maestro, uh, was forced after the 2008 to say in front of Congress that he had no clue about what had happened. Uh, and if you read what everybody was saying, I mean, starting from George W. Bush, down many, many levels of important people making decisions during that crisis. The question they were asking was, how could this happen? Well, it could happen because we did not know as much about complex systems as the experts think that they do. And as they tell us that they do, uh, the pandemic is another good example. And in the olden days, that could be managed because all the information was was essentially in the hands of the elites themselves. Today, it cannot be managed. We are watching them center stage, tell us one thing, one moment, the opposite, the next moment, a third thing, a moment later, and pretend that they know everything about what's going on. So, so if you're Anthony Fauci and you're going back and forth, people are seeing you. There, there, There's a complete erosion of trust that's going on because the information system is way too big for you to, to control in the way that they would have done in the 20th century. There's a word that you use in your book to describe what's going on in the society that you wrote back in 2014. I don't know when I started seeing it other places, but certainly most recently, and that is the word nihilism. What is nihilism and what? how important is that to what's going on in our society? Yeah, that's a funny one because, you know, if you're an analyst, you really measure your words. I mean, you really put them on a little scale and go, does this really... It's just re and I had qualms about some of the words that I use, and I had probably the most qualms about nihilism because it seemed kind of sensationalistic. But, you know, if you look at it and it looks like that word or what it describes, um, then I went with it. And now, of course, everybody uses the word pretty promiscuously. Um, of course, the word goes back to uh, to Gainev, the, the Russian uh, novelist, uh, a novel called uh, Fathers and Sons, and there's a character in it, whose name now escapes me, but it doesn't really matter, uh, who believes that um, society needs to be destroyed to the ground. And when he gets asked, but what are you going to build on it? He goes, doesn't matter. The first step is destroy society to the last stick. All right. Much of the reaction against the elites, uh, nobody can call me a, a fan of the elites, but when the public erupts against the elites, when people who claim to represent the public, uh, usually called populists, people like Trump, uh, lift up their swords against the elites, they are against. They, they Their stand is 100% against. They want to bash at the institutions. They want to strike at what they've considered to be uh, privileged, uh, smug, self-righteous people that are always calling them, you know, names like racists and, you know, um, basically disrespecting everybody who is not one of them. But they have no programs. They have, first of all, no real organization, no real structure, no real programs, not really even an ideology, a coherent ideology. They usually, these revolts from the public and these these populists tend to have a flavor. So Trump is kind of like a right-wing flavor. Um, but um, I mean, he is not 
uh, programmatic anything, right? Trump seems to change his mind as the wind blows. So, I mean, uh, so a nihilist is somebody or a group, a condition, which is what we have today, I would say, uh, of, of revolt against an established system that has reached such a level of emotional intensity that those in revolt want to do as uh, in the Russian novel, smash every stick down to the ground, uh, but have not a thought in their heads about what to put in its place. And of course, we need we need hierarchies, we need institutions to to get anything achieved in a complicated society. Tell us more about the success of this book. Um, are you selling hundreds of thousands of this book? Forty thousand. And what are the most interesting things? that have come back to you because of the book? People's reactions, articles written, all that kind of stuff. What, what's the tale? This is a 10-year process. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one, uh, particularly these times where everybody is so um, basically in a corner and attacking the other corner and, and there's very little middle ground. Uh, I always felt as an analyst, I guess the CIA teaches you this, is that you are not, to, you know, if somebody can tell what your political leanings are from your analysis, you failed, right? So the book has had a funky career that way in that it, it seems to appeal to whoever is not in office at the time. So when Trump was in office, a lot of the old Obamaites were interested in, in, in the book and would call me up uh, uh, when um, when since Biden has won, it's been almost entirely the other side that has been interested. Um, but I, in a, in a in an era of you know canceling and whatnot, um, I seem both in my book and in my writings incapable to get anybody angry at me. I don't know what the hell it is about the way I write. I've tried. I actually have tried because I figure everybody gets angry at you and starts yelling at you immediately you you, know, you become a celebrity or something right I, I can't do it I have not for lack of trying but I can't do it so the book has had a remarkable career for me in that it has brought nothing but good things nothing but good things I have met so many amazing people through it many of whom have become actual personal friends um, I have traveled you know there was a moment when the French they're still halfway there. Can't figure out what the heck is happening in their own country. If you know anything about France, that's unusual in their history. The French, would, I've been there many times. So I was there when I was young. The French used to be the other way around. They would tell us Americans what was wrong with us. Right? This is this is this is what you're missing. Right? But after the uh, the um, the yellow vest and everything that has happened since, that doesn't fit into their their political schemes, which are pretty old fashioned. So I spent one one year where I, I kept being invited to France. I mean, this is not bad. And I, I always make it a condition. You have to bring my wife with me. I'm not going to go there. I'm too old to be alone. So, and sure, bring her along. So it, it's been kind of like that. It's been an amazing adventure, an amazing adventure. And it's throwing out the ideas of watching things evolve, so watching the the elites strike back, you know, the empire strikes back uh, with um, uh, the pandemic being kind of like the model, if you generate a crisis that's harsh enough, you can make the public frightened enough to obey you again. Uh, and so that that model has you know, this information is terrifying. So you have to somehow control that or white supremacy is terrifying. So you have to somehow control that. Um, so seeing my ideas kind of mutate and seeing seeing the people that I characterize take different strategies to get over the uh, the, the landscape that I described. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's just been it's been all good. I have no complaints. Why is Walter Lippmann a character in your book? I mean, he was a brilliant man. He was the one who defined I, I I was trying to figure out who is it that we're talking about when I say the words the public. And um, the public is not the people. The people is essentially a category of political philosophy that doesn't really exist. Although every time the public hits the street, it claims to be the people, as it never fails. 
It's not the masses. That's uh, an old sociological term from the 20th century. It's barely even the crowd, although since the, the, the smartphone, the crowd and the public are pretty tightly connected. It, what, what Walter Lippmann said is the public is any group that is interested in a particular affair. So the affair could be getting rid of Emmanuel Macron if you are a yellow vest. It could be getting rid of capitalism if you are an Occupy Wall Street. Um, it could be getting rid of Mubarak, the, the Egyptian dictator, if you are uh, in the middle of the Arab Spring in Tahrir Square. There is no single public. There are publics. Uh, if I had any intellectual integrity, that's what I would use. But, you know, it just sounds ugly. So I call it the public. Um, uh, and and it is the public that has been uh, essentially been empowered by uh, um, the digital platforms. It is a network public opposed to a hierarchical set of institutions from the 20th century. Um, and curiously enough, Walter Lippmann pretty much defined the mindset of of those institutions. Walter Lippmann was literally a a Platonist. He he believed that there was such a thing as Platonic truth, and that if you were of a certain intellectual elite, you could perceive it, and despaired of the public, as he defined it, of understanding, because he, he identified the public with the citizen, citizenry, and he thought that there had to be a, an all-competent public if they were going to decide at election time, you know, what policies needed to be implemented in, in terms of what candidates they elected. And he despaired of that. He thought that that could not happen. He was a tremendous elitist, a tremendous elitist. So he both gave me the definition for the public and created a, a the ultimate model for uh, for elitism, which is expertise. And this was, of course, back in the 1920s when it was kind of a radical idea that the U.S. government, for example, should gather statistics about its economic activities. You know, so there was a lot of this elitism that was smart. They were, they were moving with the times. Those were the times for it. Unfortunately, 100 plus years later, um, it's obsolete. Your chapter, the finale for skeptics, first paragraph, my thesis, again, is a simple one. The information technologies of the 21st century have enabled the public, just talking about that, composed of amateurs, people from nowhere, to break the power of political hierarchies of the industrial age. What, what, what's an amateur? Well, an amateur is somebody who, um, if you're talking about science, for example, you know, cli climate change, for example, or um, the economy, for example, doesn't have a set of PhD uh, degrees from the best universities on those particular subjects. It's people from nowhere, like I said. It's If I were to opine on astronomy or on nuclear physics, I would obviously be a complete amateur in that. So um, we have a, a structure of, of society that was put in place in the 20th century that just um, rose up people who were multi, multi, multi accredited and um, and equated accreditation with wisdom and knowledge. And I think although you have to have some knowledge and uh, and some of those people are possibly wise as a class in the in the contemporary moment of of the information structure that is digital and the tsunami is battering away um uh, they are not wise they are very reactionary they are very backwards looking they want their 20th century back because you spent 28 years in the cia analyzing global media what countries of the world are the are closed and that the public doesn't get to see enough information to really understand what's going on in the world? Oh, most of them. I mean, the American... The good thing about the digital environment is, you know, seek and you shall find. If you are interested in a country, you can always find information, sometimes trustworthy, sometimes less so, about that country online. But we are... 
in the old days of the narrow stream of information, I believe the media actually covered more, for example, international news than today with our gigantic tsunami battering away. So, I mean, just to give one example that I think is a fascinating one, the country of Chile. country of Chile is like um, a laboratory of the ideas in my book, okay? They were, they, they, why is the public in revolt? The ideas are usually, well, economic reasons or, you know, the inequality usually brought up or political reasons and tyranny is usually brought up. But you look at a country like Chile and you say to yourself, well, how did this happen? Chile had was by far the most prosperous country in, in Latin America for like 25, 30 years. It had entered the, the Club of Rich Nations. It had a really viable um, democracy so that socialists and conservatives kind of alternated in power. And then in 2019, they had this thing called the estallido social, the, the, the social blow up. Uh, where uh, were started by um, the fact that the government had raised the cost of um, uh, public transport by, I think, four or five percent. I mean, tiny, tiny pennies. Millions, hundreds of millions worth of damage in, in, in the, the riots that ensued. A million people in the streets of Santiago opposed to something or other. Um, Dozens died, uh, but what happened was, for once, the nihilist side, the the public, was given a chance to be positive. They elected a president. There was a presidential election that came along, and the the person the person who got elected had long hair and tattoos. He was a lifelong protester. He was, I think, thirty at the time, and they convened a constitutional. Uh, convention uh, that was totally dominated by the protesters, right? So the Constitution, I mean, if you want to read that, it's not like they have no ideas about what to change. It's that they have no coherent ideology to organize those ideas. The Constitution was 300 pages long, and it, it was full of tremendous declarations of you know virtue about you know uh, the uh, aboriginal chileans should get sovereignty but nothing was defined nothing was clarified they had won the support of of the voting public in in chile they had both the presidency and the constitutional assembly had been voted in by the time that they came up with this constitution, it got voted down by like 65%. It was a crazy document. It made no sense. The The president today is very unpopular. He put a doctor in charge of uh, somebody who had a woman who had distinguished herself. Uh, it's kind of like a uh, charitable person uh, during the pandemic as charge in charge of the Ministry of, of Interior, which takes care of the police. So that, of course, there was a symbolic gesture that the 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 um the, the carabineros the the police in in uh in chile they the, these were protesters they didn't like them um and now they have a tremendous crime problem and now she's backtracking and trying to solve the crime problem so it's i wish this was reported in our media in the way that it should be this is a fascinating experiment everybody who's protesting around the world and by the way the characteristics of the public and of the elites in every country are amazingly similar. The structural, the structural pressures, I think, make them that way. Um, you could have put the Chileans, the Chilean protesters in, uh, in New York. Uh, they could have been Occupy Wall Street, or you could have put them in France. They could have been the Yellow Vest. But here they got to be positive, and they couldn't do it. They simply could not do it. So I wish we had more... Um, more coverage of you know Latin America, Asia, even Europe. Our, our coverage of Europe is is only insofar as it touches us or it touches our politics. So if if you happen to be pro populist, you know you're a Trumpist or something like that, the, you you follow the the populists overseas and you cheer them on and vice versa. But you never totally understand other countries on their own terms, which is what you should do. And coming from from CIA, of course, that's what CIA tried to do. In your book, you have a contrast between the story of JFK and the Bay of Pigs, 
which was a failure, and Barack Obama. Tell us yes. the background on that, please. Yeah, I mean, I find that to be a really good analytic tool is because we get so embedded into the present is go back and say, when, how do people handle presidential failure um, and then and now? So my, my example was of the Bay of Pigs, which was, in hindsight, a ridiculous idea. They had 3,000 people trained by CIA, invaded Cuba, a country at the time I think had 7 million people, and had a military force. There's no way that was ever going to triumph. I mean, I think maybe the idea originally on their previous president, because the whole, the whole thing was set into motion to begin with by Eisenhower, I think the idea might have been, I have never heard this, I'm just speculating, that the Marines were going to come in behind those 3,000 people, because I don't see how else you think this is going to win. Anyway, it was a disaster. It was a humiliation for Kennedy. He was young. It was early, uh, first 100 days. He despaired. He thought his popularity was never going to recover. Well, his popularity went up. It went up from 70% to 80%, okay? Um, because why? Well, at that time... We were in the Cold War. He was everybody's president. He wasn't just the president of one side of the political spectrum. He was the guy who was representing us in this terrible you know, uh, conflict with, with the Soviet Union and with communism. And everybody rooted for him. They wanted him to succeed. Um, Obama, by contrast, um, started uh, Obamacare. Uh, the, the um, Affordable Health Act and and um, and uh, the, the the reform of, of the finance um, uh, system, uh, the re-regulation of the finance system, and particularly Obamacare. Um, before, and basically, they had all kinds of calculations about how they had. Oh, I know it was it was it was the uh, the stimulus, the stimulus. They had all kinds of calculations coming out of the Obama uh, um, White House, how the stimulus was going to short-circuit unemployment that was going to make the, the pain much, a much shorter span, and then in the end was going to bring the economy back to where it should have been. Uh, they, they made the mistake of putting down on paper what they thought was going to happen, which tells you they really believed in it. Um, well, it was a disaster. When they, with uh, the stimulus, the economy went far lower than what they said was going to happen without the stimulus. But before any of that happened, before any of that happened, people said it was going to happen. People distrusted the uh, the Obama White House, and his popularity began to tank and really settled in the high 40s for most of his presidency until the very end. Um, already, there was no thinking, this is our president. No, this is their president. And he's trying to impose all these ideas uh, on me. Um, and uh, whereas being elected president back in uh, 1960 gave you a, a mantle of authority that people respected and tried to preserve even in the face of failure, being elected president back in 2008 uh, was the opposite it 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 made people distrust large numbers of the public distrusted you because now you were the face of that elite that was trying to um basically bamboozle the public back in 1964 when the beatles went on the ed sullivan show they had an audience of 70 million people in a country that had over 100 million less people than we have in the country today when President Biden made his speech coming back from Israel and from the Oval Office. He had 22 million people watch out of a country of 340 million people. I give you these figures only to ask you, what do you think the impact of this kind of thing over the years will be on the future of democracy? Yeah, 22 million is is, is a large audience by today's standards. Um, I mean... I'm going to be honest with you. I, I wish I knew. I don't do predictions. Um, I, I, it's something we're going to have to learn to live with. I don't think we're ever going back to. I mean, the olden days. Um, I mean, I was part of this. You know, the the um, the mass audience was like this huge mirror where the entire country saw itself reflected. We were all there, right? Today, it's like the mirror has 
toppled and shattered and the public lives in all the broken pieces right all the fragments and that fragmentation i think is it's as long as we have this information system and this information system is here for the foreseeable future is something we can't reverse i think is something we're going to have to manage so on the one hand there are many ways in which you can have a fractured system that in the end coheres into a you know higher level of authority and you can do that by, um, you know, n- not pretending to be what you're not, which is what our politicians tend to do. But it's not going to be an easy ride. I, I wrote the book precisely for that reason. It seemed to me when I wrote it, nobody was seeing this. And I am a pretty, pretty straight, coming from Cuba, I'm a pretty straightforward, simple-minded advocate of liberal democracy. I don't put any ifs or buts about it. I think the worst, most inefficient liberal democracy is infinitely superior to the most effective um despotism and and so yeah i think that i think this fragmentation the fact that we all are going to live in little shards and not in that gigantic mirror uh it, it is something that our democracies have to take into account however let's be clear we have always lived the, the mass audience was a fiction it was a we weren't really uh satisfied with three uh tv stations uh, networks or five or six brands of cars you know th- three car makers um that was just an industrial system imposing its its uh its needs upon us so the way we are today is closer to the way we really are and the way we were before the industrial era, the, the United States was very fragmented way back in, in the 19th century and somehow seemed to survive um, with bumps along the way. So I think it can be done. I've got to ask you about Stripe, the company that published your book. First of all, uh, we don't often give our opinions here, but I have to say this is one of the most attractive, physically attractive books I've ever seen. And he's got a whole series that he publishes. You go on the website of Stripe, you can see them on there. How yes. much does this cost if you buy it, the hardback version? Do you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Amazon bounces all over the place. But, I mean, first of all, it's part of my immense good luck that I ended up with, with Stripe Press. Because, number one, they're Silicon Valley. So they're design plus. Uh, the guy who designed that book, essentially a Silicon Valley designer. And I have to say, I had to be talked into the pink, but um, really it's a very striking part. Uh, many people tell me the first thing they say about my book is not how brilliant I am, but what a beautiful book it is. And that kind of gladdens my heart. Um, it's 20 bucks. Uh, they, 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 they basically asked me, well, what do you think? What do you want? And I didn't want to make it too expensive. I didn't know. I mean, I honestly didn't know. So it's 20 bucks uh, full value. Amazon, I think right now it's like $12. They've, they've knocked it down to, I don't know why they do those things. Uh, you can buy uh, an Audible book, which is a lot less. And you can buy a Kindle book, which is, I think, nine ninety nine. Who's the Who's the image on the cover of the book? You know, I, I don't think the person I asked that, that they found it somewhere, but I don't know. It's a some sort of uh, medieval-looking uh, female sort of royalty to look like. But no, I, I, that's a good, really good question. I asked it, and I think the designer designers think in terms of images; they don't think in terms of provenance. So, I, me as an analyst, is where does this come from? And they they, they didn't know. I did some research on Stripe, and I'm not sure I have the accurate numbers, but it's not a small company. And you mentioned that, is it James Collison, who is, it's an Irish-American company. Was that his yeah. name, Collison? Pat, there's two Collisons, John and Patrick, oh. uh, brothers. Uh, look them up. Uh, Patrick was now, I mean, he was worth, I said, um a billion and a half, but I mean, he was a baby. That was like, you know, a few years back. He's worth a lot more now. I won't even guess how much. The company has grown like topsy, many, many, many billions. It's one of the giants in Silicon Valley today. But look the two of them up. They are, again, part of the joy of my book, meeting people like this. Yeah, they're both born in Ireland. Um, I mean, they're literal geniuses. 
these were kids who were, who were solving the differential equations when they're like 10 years old, you know? Um, and, um, but the company is an amazing company. Um, I have been to the Googleplex, all right? I went there when I was at CAA, they gave us a tour. And um, the Googleplex is like, it's like Toyland, right? It's like you you have these little swimming pools where you can take laps and not even actually move. There is volleyball nets. There's ping pong tables. There's computer games. Uh, if you go to Stripe, there's books everywhere. Books everywhere. It's like the adults in the room versus the kiddies. Okay, so that's just the culture. That's it. Comes down from from Patrick and John. I mean, it's, it's an amazing place. Do you have another book in you? That's a good question. I don't yet, and I I get that question a lot. And I say when when I then that's exactly the way. That it should be right. If you have an, a book in you, it should come out. You shouldn't just write a book because and lots of uh, two or three publishers have asked me, "Well, why don't you write another book?" And I say, "Well, what would it be about?" And I says, well, "Write them exactly like the old one, only we'll sell on more." And the answer is no. I mean, you have to have something that you want to say. I may at some point. I think the landscape has changed enough with the pandemic um, that they, I may have something to say, but at the at the moment, no. Our guest has been Martin Curry. The book is called The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. And we thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's fun. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.